Thank you, everyone, for tuning into Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And on this history show, we believe that history is people. These are their stories, and they are written in blood. The events that we're about to dive into are but a small few days in a much larger seismic power shift in the Middle East that went on during the 70s and the 80s. We visited this time and place before when we looked at the Shah of Iran, and we're coming back to it, but this time primarily in Lebanon. But our subject couldn't be more different from the late Shah in pretty much every tangible way. He will be our uh, pilot, you might say, on a journey to a war that few people paid attention to while it was happening, and even fewer remember today. I'm going to stay away from the larger geopolitical machinations in this episode and try instead to focus on the real people involved with the sudden and unfolding events. These people had nothing to do with this faraway war in Lebanon, but they found themselves entirely wrapped up in it nonetheless. This is the story of Captain John Testrake, calm, cool, and hijacked. Six months on, the war is worse. At the front line in Beirut, it's become a ritual. There's no advance, no retreat. The money market of the Middle East may be destroyed utterly, but the war in the rubble never stops. Each side watches the other with vigilance, waiting for a shadow, a face, a victim. It's not enjoyment, but to protect your people, that's the enjoyment. These children learn to fight, to fire guns, and to kill for their cause. Within a few days, some of them will be fighting on the front. On the morning of June 14, 1985, Captain John Testrick was waiting in the hotel lobby in Athens for the crew bus to take him to the airport. There also awaiting were his co-pilots, or more accurately, his first officer Phil Maresca and his flight engineer Christian Zimmerman. The three pilots had never met before, but that didn't really matter. TWA had a rigorous training for all of its airline crew, to the point where all the pilots could be interchanged at a moment's notice, and each would still know exactly what his job was and how to do it with perfection. TWA Flight 847 wasn't even supposed to be theirs to pilot, but as happened so often, last-minute scheduling conflicts created necessities and everyone had to adjust accordingly. Also in the lobby were four flight attendants led by the flight purser, Yuli Derrickson. On the way to the airport, there was no small talk or getting to know each other. Yuli was busy instructing her attendants on the order of service during the flight. She was comprehensive in her details, and she expected efficiency from her staff. Captain John Testrake was nearing retirement. He had seen many pursers, and Yuli impressed him. Once at the airport, Yuli and her attendants went straight to the plane. John and Phil went to the ready room in the basement to check over weather systems and flight information, and Christian made straight for the cockpit to ready the plane. And as I said, John Testrick was nearing a mandatory retirement age. He was a well-seasoned pilot by this point, and yet he never took any chances. Athens to Rome was a fairly short flight, but you never know what could happen. And so, he meticulously checked every detail of the itinerary. John was born a country boy in 1927 in western New York State. His grandfather planted the family roots there after immigrating from Holland. And John's father, at the age of 21, purchased a 57-acre farm and began planting grapes. Then, the Depression hit, and life got real hard, real quick. 
Nonetheless, John's family could at least feed themselves with the resources from their own land. At the age of 12, John's father bought him a $5 plane ride, and after seeing the bird's-eye view of the cornfields and the majesty of the sun shimmering off of Lake Erie, John knew he would be a pilot. When World War II came around, young John had every intention of serving his country in the cockpit of a B-17, but he had astigmatism, and the Cadets Academy wouldn't have him, so he found himself serving for the United States Navy instead. But before he was shipped off to exotic parts of the world, the Navy discovered John took typing class in high school. And so this teenage small-town farm boy found himself roaming the halls of the Pentagon with admirals and generals. Fed up, however, with clerical work, John successfully got his sea duty, serving aboard an aircraft carrier which put him near his beloved planes. And there, he got to see firsthand just how deadly flying could be, as planes missed the runway and crashed into the icy waters. There were moments he'll never forget. Back home, after his time in the service, he attended the Spartan School of Aeronautics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And there, he met a slender, dark-eyed beauty named Patricia, his future wife. And she was a devout Christian. And though John hadn't really given his spirituality much thought, Patricia was determined to change that. John then found a job working in an airplane hangar, and he fortuitously was able to purchase his first plane for 50 bucks from a man who had just been drafted into the Korean War, and as such, unfortunately for that man, he wasn't going to need his plane for a while. Finally, John Testrick had a plane to call his own, and he soon discovered that he had a lot to learn, as in one of his early flights, he got completely lost over the clouds of Cleveland, Ohio, not knowing where he was until he actually landed. But... Let's go back to the cockpit in Athens in 1985, as John was running through his pre-flight checklist with his co-pilots, Phil and Christian. Gear lever and lights, asked Phil. Down and check, replied John. Brakes, he continued. Parked, replied John. Flight instruments, check. Radios, on and check. The ticket agent then opened the cockpit door and let John know that all the passengers had been boarded. Then over the radio from the plane's mechanic, clear to start your engines. Phil then asked the control tower for permission to do just that. When permission was granted, John began firing them up, each with a roar. One, two, and three. Captain Testrick reported to the mechanic that he had three good starts. He rechecked all of his equipment just to be sure, and then the mechanic gave him a salute. And John began easing his Boeing 727 out of the parking stand and down the taxiway. Everything was going perfect. The weather was beautiful, the traffic was slow, and they got in the air right away. John gracefully climbed his aircraft above the ancient city of Athens, and then he banked to avoid flying over residential areas and made his way west. The blue bay of the city was gorgeous, peppered with cruise ships in the harbor. The cruise ships may have reminded John that he was eager to get back to Athens that very evening. He had a date with his wife, Phyllis. It was their anniversary, and since he was traveling in the area anyway, they thought of no better place to celebrate than in the Mediterranean on a cruise. But Phyllis was his second wife, and by the time he had married her, he was well acquainted with tragedy. In 1955, after marrying Patricia, they had purchased a tract home, and every day the young couple would hold hands as more and more parts of the home were completed, envisioning their lives together in this picturesque mid-century lifestyle. They had already started a family. Living in the new home with them would be their two-year-old girl named Debbie and their four-month-old boy named Bill. On their way home from one of these trips to see their home under construction around Christmas, a car coming in the opposite direction swerved into them. Patricia screamed, and then all went black. When John awoke, he was in the hospital. Everything hurt, especially his left foot. He saw the nurses looking at him. Then, like a tidal wave of emotion, he remembered what had happened. He asked for Patricia. They said she's okay. She's hurt, but she'll be okay. What about my kids, he asked. What about Debbie? Is she okay? What about my baby boy? The nurses didn't answer, and he knew that something terrible had happened. The doctor will be in soon, is all they could muster. When the doctor finally came in, John learned Debbie was hurt, yet recovering. But baby Bill was pronounced dead at the scene. As John was taking in the death of his four-month-old son, the doctor also told him that his left foot was going to have to be amputated, and the surgery was already scheduled. 
TWA, learning of the tragedy of one of their pilots, arranged for a special flight for John's mother to be flown immediately to see him and his family. And when she got there, she demanded a halt to the surgery, chastising the doctors for their haste, and set about finding the best reconstructive surgeon in the area. And she found him, and put him to work on her son's foot. And for the rest of his life, whenever John walked the acreage of his farm, he was always grateful for his mom for having the wherewithal amid the tragedy to save his foot. The result of these instances gave John Testrick a sense of the frailty of life. It was his memento mori moment. And like what happens to so many people in similar circumstances, they begin thinking a little more about their own death and beyond. And thus, John began attending worship services with his beautiful wife Patricia, and soon they had another son together. By 1959, John and Patricia bought 60 acres of rolling hills in Missouri and planted grapes, just like his father. More children came, along with horses, cows, and all the joys of farm life. And around this time, his astigmatism suddenly disappeared, which put John in the running for his captain's wings with TWA. It's his boyhood dream. By the late 1960s, however, Patricia received a cancer diagnosis. And she bore brain surgery and chemotherapy like a saint. And mostly, she just hoped and prayed that her husband would be able to carry on without her. Quote, On Valentine's Day, 1976, Pat's battle with cancer ended, and she was taken to be home with God. On that day, she was reunited with the baby son we had lost so many years before. End quote. A few years later, John's son Alan joined a popular mysticism cult-like group and fell into a deep depression. And then on October 11th, 1984, Alan took his own life. Less than a year later, in the spring of 1985, Captain Testrake was charged with flying routes over Europe and North Africa. A Czech pilot welcomed him to his new position, but warned him, quote, You're in a different environment over here, you know, and different things can happen to you. You're not in Pittsburgh or Chicago. You've got to be aware of what's going on on the ramps around you and around the airplane, and just keep your eyes open when you walk through these airports. Be on the lookout for strange characters, for situations that just don't seem right, end quote. But back in the skies, over Athens, aboard TW-8 Flight 847, Captain John Testrick had been in the air for a few minutes. He hit 5,000 feet and flipped off the fastened seatbelt sign so Yuli could get to work on her itinerary. A few moments later, John heard a banging sound in the cabin behind the cockpit, and at first he thought it was the shuffle of service carts, but the noise persisted and it was getting louder. John, turning to his co-pilots, asked what the noise was about, and Christian said he would go check. And he got up from his seat and peered through the peephole in the cockpit door. After a moment or two, Christian calmly sat back down in his chair and quietly said, We've got a hijack. Christian then grabbed the fire axe in the cockpit and stashed it away in one of his desk compartments. He didn't know what weapons the hijackers had, but he didn't want them to have another one. John was impressed with his quick thinking. The noises in the cabin grew louder, and now shouting could be heard, and then a heavy banging on the cockpit door. And then suddenly, the bottom panel of the door was kicked out and flew into the cockpit. Then over the intercom, Yuli calmly told the captain that they were being roughed up and asked him to please open the door. John turned to Christian and told him to open it. But as soon as Christian undid the latch, the door violently swung open, and two young men burst in, one of them waving around a pistol. And he pointed the gun straight at Captain Testrick and shouted, Algira! Algira! But John couldn't understand him. Algira, he shouted again. Oh, you mean Algiers. John looked at the other young man, and he was holding a couple of hand grenades with the pins pulled out of them. The only thing keeping them from going off was his grip, and this scared the captain more than the pistol. John told them that he would take them to Algiers, no problem, just don't get excited. The two hijackers were 20, if that, and they were clean-cut and very nervous. And content with what John had just told them, they moved back into the cabin to handle the 150 or so passengers. They began rearranging the passengers, men against the windows, women and children against the aisles. And as they did this, they would occasionally smash a passenger's head with their fist or pistol whip another across the face who didn't comply fast enough. Then everyone was made to sit with their heads down between their knees. Anyone who picked their head up too far caught a swift beating. With the hijackers busy in the cabin, Phil Maresca put out the hijacking news over the radio, and John looked at both his co-pilots and said, Looks like we're going to Algiers. But where is Algiers? Phil replied. Beats me, said John. It's on the coast of North Africa. That's all I know. Phil then began shuffling through his charts looking for the damn place so he could calculate if they even had enough fuel to get there, which they definitely did not. When the leader of the two hijackers returned to the cockpit, John looked at them firmly and said, No Algiers, no fuel. 
The man only returned a desperate stare. Algira! So John pointed to the fuel gauge to drive the plane home. And still, the man just shouted, Algira! Quote, The stubbornness of this young man was beginning to get to me. He was just a kid, and I'm a mature command pilot. And besides all that, this was my airplane. And it made me angry that this punk was trying to tell me what I could or could not do with it. I knew its capabilities, and I knew its limitations. He waved his gun in my face again. Algira! Suddenly, the whole situation just got to me. Listen, I snapped. If you want to keep going this way, I'll put you in the ocean somewhere off the coast of Tunis, because that's where I'm going to run out of fuel. My sudden outburst of anger made him realize that I was not kidding, and he seemed to understand, and at least was willing to compromise. End quote. As Captain Testrick was trying to navigate a serious language barrier with these guys, he suddenly realized that one of them spoke fluent German, which was fortuitous because Yuli Derrickson, the flight purser, was born in Germany and also spoke the language. By translating from German to English, she was able to coordinate all the communication. They got the hijackers to agree on Cairo, but after a few minutes, they changed their mind. And so, at John, they both started shouting, Beirut! John looked at Christian. Christian looked back at him. They both looked at Phil. None of them had any idea what he was saying. Finally, it hit John that they wanted to go to Beirut, Lebanon. And Captain Testrick obliged. They had the fuel for Beirut, and it put them very close to Tel Aviv. The hijackers, who would later be identified as Muhammad Ali Hamadi and Hazan Iz al-Din, with their destination finally set, decided that they wanted to know exactly who was on board this plane that they now controlled. So they called for Yuli, and they asked her to collect everyone's passports. Once completed, they asked her to pick out the Jewish names on board. Yuli Derrickson, the German-born flight purser, adamantly refused. And with her own life on the line, she even allegedly took steps to hide any passports that might sound Jewish. Frustrated with the lack of cooperation from Yuli, Hamadi and Aldin turned their attention to six young men with crew cuts who just looked very American and coincidentally didn't have any passports. As it turns out, these six young men were United States Navy deep sea divers. They had been working overseas as welders for the Navy and they were on their way home. The hijackers then decided that such esteemed guests should sit only first class. And so these sailors were escorted to the front of the plane, where they had first class all to themselves. Hamadi and Aldin asked Yuli to translate their ID cards, which she did, explaining that they were U.S. Navy divers. But the German word for Navy is Marine, and so they thought naturally that these servicemen were Marines. This is important because both hijackers are Lebanese Muslims, and for about two years now, they hated the United States Marines. It goes back to the 1983 Marine Barracks bombing, which is an entire podcast unto itself. What's important here is, Lebanese Muslims considered U.S. Marines their mortal enemies. Yuli tried to convince the hijackers that they were confused, that these men were underwater welders, but they weren't having any of it. And so, they chose sailor Robert Statham as their outlet for revenge. And Yuli recounted what happens next. Quote, it's a night flight now. The hijacker with grenades took off his own shirt and his undershirt, and he took out a razor blade. I started getting very emotional because I thought of throat cutting. All the lights were turned off in the cabin. Only the galley lights were on. Then the hijacker started cutting his undershirt into small strips. He's blindfolding Statham, very tight. And then he takes one of those thick elastic cords from a suitcase and ties up his hands, very, very high behind his back, and he pulls that elastic cord to the very end. Statham's hands immediately turn white. Then they drag him to the cockpit door. And they are beating Robert Statham with the armrest they ripped off of the flight engineer's seat. They were jumping in the air and landing full force on his body. He must have had all of his ribs broken. I was sitting only 15 feet away, and I couldn't listen to it. I put my fingers in my ears. I'll never forget it. I could still hear. They put the mic up to his face so his screams could be heard by all the passengers. When they were finished... One of the hijackers picked him up like a cat picks up its kitten and dragged him over to a seat. I'm telling Bob, Robert Statham, to hang on. He was in tremendous pain. His arms had lost all feeling. I kept saying to this German-speaking hijacker, Can I not untie his hands? We're cooperating with you. Why are you doing this to these people? He said, No. Leave him alone. He's just an American pig. End quote. The cockpit, too, wasn't immune from violence. Every time the hijackers would waltz into it, they would pistol-whip the first pilot they saw, which was always Christian Zimmerman since he sat closest to the door. And after a while, blood was running down Christian's face. His shirt was stained with it. John didn't know what to say to him. What do you say to someone in this situation? Christian caught Testrick staring at him and just smiled back. 
and assured John that somebody up above is looking out for them. And this from Christian brought a sense of calm to John, but the beatings continued nonetheless. Quote, Now that at least we knew where we were going, I hoped our captors would relax and take it a little easier on us, but if anything, they seemed to step up their attacks. They made it clear, speaking to Yuli in German and to the rest of us in broken English, that they were on a suicide mission and that they would not hesitate to die for their cause. Although we still had no idea what that cause might be. End quote. That cause was primarily the release of around 700 Lebanese prisoners taken by Israel. And again, I hate to do this to you, but these are massively complex geopolitical events that just don't fall into the scope of this episode. So we're going to press on with the hijacking, but I at least wanted to give you some context as to the hijackers' motivations. They were essentially hoping that by using the hijacked airline and passengers as leverage, they could get those prisoners released. As TWA Flight 847 approached the Beirut airport, the airport authority basically told the crew that they and all their baggage were definitely not wanted in Beirut, which had its own myriad problems, such as a civil war between Christians and Muslims. Phil Moresco replied that he didn't care what they thought, that they were coming in for a landing because they had no choice. But Beirut was obstinate and said under no circumstances did they have permission to land. But Captain Testrick broke in, quote, My aircraft is in distress, I am low on fuel, and I am declaring an emergency. I demand clearance to land at Beirut. End quote. And then John dipped the nose of the plane toward the airport and headed in. And soon the Beirut tower operator replied, giving them permission to land. As Testrick's plane parked at the Beirut airport, the hijackers argued in Arabic over the radio with the tower and... They were demanding fuel, but they weren't getting any of it. And so, they decided to use some of their leverage. They turned their attention again to sailor Robert Statham. And Captain Testrick recounts, quote, The sounds of the blows were sickening. As they brought the chair arm down on Statham again and again and again, we wanted to stop it. Would have given anything to stop it, but knew that there was nothing any of us could do. As their blows crashed down on Statham again and again, Phil got on the radio. They're beating the passengers. They're beating the passengers. We demand fuel, he cried. Eventually, there was a response, and the workmen arrived to give us the fuel we needed. End quote. As the fuel was being loaded, both John and Yuli pleaded with the hijackers to at least let the women and the children go at this point. Yuli spoke to them in German and got them to agree. And in moments, 17 women and two children exited Flight 847. By 1.30 in the afternoon, fueled up now, Captain Testrick had his plane back in the air and he was headed for Algiers. But Algeria wanted nothing to do with the wayward hijackers or their mission. Testrick says the hijackers gave long, passionate speeches in Arabic, pleading their cause, but to no avail. Finally, Phil chimed in, shouting that they were going to land no matter what because they were at risk of blowing up from the hand grenades or running out of fuel and crashing into the Mediterranean. And at that, John Testrick again brought the plane down onto a runway teeming with military personnel and various military and high-profile Algerian men came and went and arguing with the passengers as John's plane sat in limbo on the runway. When it became apparent to the hijackers that they were not getting what they wanted, they brought forward U.S. Army Major Kirk Carlson from among the passengers and bound his hands. They threw him on the floor of the cockpit and began beating him mercilessly, and his screams of pain finally brought the arrival of a fuel truck. But before filling up, the fuel truck driver began shouting towards the cockpit window, and so Phil leaned out to hear him better, but still couldn't understand the man. So he leaned out again, and he said, tell me again what you want. And finally, Phil popped his head back into the cockpit, and a bit shocked, told Testrick and Christian that he thinks this guy wants a credit card. They all got a bit of a laugh out of being asked to pay for their own hijacking, but the guy wouldn't begin fueling without it. Just then, Yuli walked into the cockpit to see what the holdup was, and John told her, you're never going to believe what this idiot wants. He's asking for a credit card. Yuli, too, couldn't help but get a bit of a laugh out of it, and she said, fine, I'll give him a credit card, as she pulled out her Shell Oil card out of her purse. And it was exactly what the guy wanted. And soon, Yuli's card was charged for $6,000 of jet fuel. But hijackers Hamadi and Aldin were still unhappy at the effort that it took to get the fuel that they wanted. So Testrick tells us that they decided to take this frustration out on their favorite whipping boy. Quote, they dragged Kurt Carlson back to his seat and resumed their abuse of Statham, the Navy diver. He was tied up, brought forward, and beaten until he was left lying unconscious in the doorway. Again, the beatings were terribly savage, and if I had had a gun, I would not have hesitated to shoot both hijackers right there. Young Statham was an incredibly brave young man. He didn't cry out once as they were beating him. He wouldn't give him the satisfaction. End quote. 
Again refueled, TWA Flight 847 was back in the air. And it was in the air that Captain John Testrick was told to fly the plane back to Beirut again. And it was here that it became readily apparent to the cockpit that these young men had no plan from here on out. They planned on hijacking a plane, but they hadn't planned on what to do after that. This back and forth was, at the very least, irritating to Testrick. He's been a pilot for most of his life. You don't go into the air without a plan. Halfway to Beirut, John stood up and began to stretch his back when one of the hijackers ran towards him, screaming and yelling, waving his gun in his face. And John just shouted back, hey, I'm an old grandfather and my back hurts. Surprisingly, this got the young man to back off and calm down, allowing John to have his mid-flight stretch. But again, approaching Beirut, it was the same old, no, you can't land while we're landing anyway situation. And John and his crew by this point were tired, and they were getting fatigued. John even began to wonder if all of this was even real, if it wasn't some sort of terrible nightmare. He turned around and looked at young Robert Statham, just a kid, still unconscious on the cockpit floor. And reality washed back over Testrick when the hijackers began shouting and arguing with the Lebanese airport tower. Whatever it is they wanted, they weren't getting it. And so again, they turned to their favorite way of getting what they wanted. And I'm going to let the Navy diver Clint Scruggs recount what happened next. Uh, excuse me. It's kind of it's kind of hard right now. And then uh, we kept flying, and they kept beating us. You know, every time they walked down the aisle, there was two of them, and uh, they hit us, and we were the only ones in first class. They moved all the people out of first class, and then Bob and I was the only two up there. And I'm looking over there, I'm saying, hang in there, Bob, hang in there. And I'm saying, hoping Bob's saying, Clint, hang in there, Clint, hang in there. <laughs> and uh, they took Bob. And they took him up to forward of the cockpit. And they kept stomping him and beating him. And he, he was, you know, he was doing the best he can. You know what I'm saying? Being the man there he was. And then, the, 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 okay. And then I was just kept, just hanging in the box. And then they said, then I heard, the door opened the, of the plane, and then I heard pat, pat, and I heard him say, oh God, oh God, and that's the last, and then they threw him off on the tarmac. Oh shit. And then, ah. <sighs> They said one more in five minutes. And then they started beating. I I was just, I, I'm, I'm biting the shit out of my lip. Because I said, I'm not going to scream. You motherfuckers ain't taking my dignity. You ain't taking this from me. And I'm, I can't fight you, but you know what? If my hands was loose, I'd kick the shit out of you. Because I'm a wrestler, I'm a pole vaulter, I'm a hot damn a deep sea navy dive. But you know, I can't do nothing when you're tired. And then uh, uh, Uli, she stepped in and she said, This man cannot hurt you. And they stopped. Everyone on the plane heard the gunshots. Captain Testrick remembered, quote, I cannot describe how I felt when Statham was killed. There was just a heavy, heavy sadness that washed over me. I leaned forward in my seat and closed my eyes. I didn't pray because I didn't know what to say. They had killed him, and I couldn't do anything to change that but the sadness and anger I felt were indescribable. End quote. The hijackers burst into the cockpit and demanded that Testrick move the plane to the refueling area. He obeyed. 
and he turned his wheels sharply to avoid running over Robert Statham's body on the tarmac. Testrick soon learned that Statham was killed for more than just being a U.S. Marine, but that he was slaughtered as an example to the Amal militia in Lebanon. Prior to Statham's execution, the hijackers, who most believe were operating under the auspices of Hezbollah, were hoping the Shia Amal militia in Lebanon would join up with them, but they were mistaken. And I'll give you a very surface-level rundown of the situation in Lebanon at the time. In 1944, Lebanon gains independence from France, and most of the citizens were Maronite Christians, followed then by Sunni Muslims. So Lebanese law was written that the president must be Christian, the prime minister must be Sunni Muslim. This left the Shia Muslims without any real political power. And then, to compound things, by the late 1970s, the population had shifted so much that Shia Muslims were the largest population, and still without political power. All sides had militias, and all sides had lots of guns. Lebanon and its capital of Beirut were thrown into a catastrophic civil war with every group vying for power. But the Amal party was far more politically astute and mature than Hezbollah at the time, and they weren't interested in international hijackings. Nonetheless, the murder of Statham worked, and it got the hijackers five more armed militiamen on the plane to assist them with whatever their plan was. And by dawn, Flight 847 was back in the air and headed for Algiers, again. Another man named Atois was brought on board, and he was apparently supposed to be the third hijacker, but he missed the flight at the airport back in Athens. And his arrival was the result of a bargain in Algiers. In exchange for Atois, the hijackers released all the women, all the children, and all the non-Americans. Now, the only passengers left on Captain Testrick's plane were American men. That night, Testrick and his crew got some good sleep as they could now stretch over multiple rows of seats. And sleep he did. Overnight, the guards had swapped out and he awoke under the care of a new group of men. Their leader called himself Jihad. And he was a bit older, in his 30s, and he spoke fluent English. And was just a bit calmer than his previous caretakers. Jihad told Captain Testrick that they needed more fuel for the plane. And to John, this of course means that they're going to start beating passengers again. But Jihad had a different tactic than his former hijackers. He said that we're going to play a little game. And he brought forward a young American man from the cabin. And he told the man to begin screaming over the radio as if they're beating him. But everyone in the cockpit soon realized that this young man wasn't much of an actor as he let out a few pitiful whimpers that barely made it through the radio waves. Phil Moresco rolled his eyes and told Jihad that he could do better than that. And Jihad said, very well then, you do it. Quote, Phil immediately cut loose with some of the most blood-curdling screams I had ever heard. Perhaps it was good therapy for him, letting out some of the tension of the last few days. I discovered that Phil is one of the all-time champion screamers. You would have thought the poor guy was being beaten within an inch of his life. End quote. As Phil was releasing the horrible sounds of death over the airwaves, Jihad turned to Testrick and politely asked him to open the window. And when John did, Jihad leaned out and pointed his pistol in the air and fired off four quick rounds. The fuel truck arrived in seconds of the charade ending, but it was the same driver from the day before, and he was again asking for a credit card. Phil then leaned out the window and told the guy to piss off that he wasn't getting a credit card today. And realizing that he wasn't getting paid, he began pumping the fuel anyway. Captain Testrake then turned to Jihad and asked him where to. But there was a problem. These guys had no game plan. At John's simple question, they began arguing and debating amongst themselves about where to go. Eventually, they told him just to fly back to Beirut again. So John put his plane back in the air and headed once again for war-torn Lebanon. While the hijackers were distracted, John leaned towards his co-pilots, Phil and Christian, and he told them that they had to figure out a way to stop all this flying. They agreed, and they came up with a plan. As Flight 847 was approaching Beirut, Christian suddenly began screaming in the cockpit, Oh my gosh, Captain, look at that! As he pointed to a random gauge on the instrument panel, and he continued insisting that the plane was in trouble. The captain leaned over, What is it? He shouted back. And the hijackers had quickly gathered around Captain Testrick with market interest in dozens of buttons and gauges that they didn't understand. Oh no, Christian shouted again, there goes another one. Captain Testrick told him to hold on, and that he was about to begin landing at the Beirut airport now, and that he thinks the engines can last long enough for them to touch down. As soon as the nose hit the ground, Christian reached over and casually closed the fuel valve to engine number two. The terrified hijackers listened as it wound to a stop. Christian then forced the engine's generator to run out of power, which caused lights to go flashing all over his dashboard. And then Testrick shouted, there goes another one. By the time the plane rolled to a stop, 
Christian had shut down the last engine, and the cockpit was flashing like a disco dance floor. John then shut down the whole plane and parked it, and he turned to Jihad and told him, that's it, the engines are gone, reminding him that they were way overdue for maintenance. Jihad and his compatriots were completely dejected at the turn of events, completely believing the ruse. But the stunt had turned the now stationary plane into something of a bachelor pad hangout for local Amal and Hezbollah militiamen in the area. Dozens of new faces came and went over the next few days, and they broke into the cargo and overhead areas and rummaged through everything. And what they didn't pilfer was tossed onto the floor of the plane. The unwanted possessions of passengers combined with now several days of accumulating trash and cigarette butts from the soldiers was becoming an overwhelming biohazard on board. By Monday, June 17th, the hijackers had removed the remaining hostages from the plane and scattered them all over Beirut, leaving only the flight crew. John, with plenty of time now since he couldn't fly the plane, found himself reflecting on his coming wedding anniversary in two days. How he longed to see his wife. They were supposed to be on a Mediterranean cruise right now. He prayed that she was hanging in there. He also began thinking of the Iranian hostage situation from a few years earlier. Those poor people were held up for 444 days. He was only on day three. Was that going to be his fate, he wondered? Not quite, as it turned out. Food was a big deal with these new captors. Every morning, Test Drake and company were served a massive, authentic Lebanese breakfast, which consisted of round, thin bread, black olives, unflavored yogurt, olive oil, and tons and tons of cheese. After the pilots got done stuffing themselves, their captors were always there offering them more food. And they would say no, no thank you, that they were full, but the hijackers kept at it until the pilots took seconds and thirds. All of the militiamen drank orange drink, Testrick says the plane was practically swimming in the stuff. Finally, they would offer him American whiskey, and when all three pilots declined, the hijackers were stunned because they were positive that all Americans loved whiskey. But after a few days, John had had enough of these guys trashing his airplane, and he told them so, admonishing them the way a parent does a messy teenager who needs to clean their room, and it worked. They brought some extra guys on board to begin cleaning out the plane, and they dumped everything out the rear doors onto the tarmac. There was so much garbage that the whole process took three hours. John also began to tire of the endless adulation of the Ayatollah Khomeini and the evils of America, and so he began to debate his captors, countering their arguments. He even allowed himself to make fun of them for smoking American cigarettes and wearing American clothing. He says, for the most part, that they were respectful but not knowledgeable enough to discuss anything other than propaganda fed to them by Hezbollah. Captain Testrick also found himself constantly chasing the guys around the airplane to keep them from stealing parts of the aircraft for souvenirs. And every day there was a new graffiti masterpiece written in broken English saying something about death to America. Quote, After living with these men for a few days, I must say, I developed a high degree of sympathy for the wives and mothers who picked up after them. Every morning, I would go into the cockpit to see what kind of mess had been made overnight. I would find thick stacks of half-eaten bread sitting on the engineer's table. Empty Pepsi cans were always strewn all over the floor, along with cigarette butts and mounds of breadcrumbs. It eventually got to the point where the entire floor was an unsightly, crunchy, nauseating mess made up of equal parts crumbs, cigarette ashes, and butts, and spilled cola. End quote. The captain snapped at the militiamen. This place is a pig pen. Do you know what pigs are? And they grudgingly admitted that they did. So John grabbed a trash bag and began cleaning up their mess, shaming the young men into helping him. He also chided them on their bathroom hygiene and was constantly swatting away their groping fingers from the control panels of the aircraft. They just couldn't keep their hands off of all the buttons. One day, a press conference was arranged for the media to interview the pilots and the hijackers. And one of the hijackers, named Ali, was designated to be the spokesman, which meant his job was to hold a gun to Captain Testrick's head on live TV. He couldn't have been more ecstatic at the opportunity. As reporters gathered around the cockpit, Ali leaned out the window, waving his gun to show them that he meant business. And John told them, that's enough, that's enough, get back in the window. And then he leaned out to chat with the media. Quote, The reporters must have thought that I was in immediate danger of being shot if I said anything wrong. I didn't think that was the case, because I had a fairly decent relationship with Ali. End quote. And so John went through all of the expected questions about his treatment, which he answered honestly. And Phil and Christian had their moments with the media too, but the interview was cut short when a reporter with a camera stepped a bit too close to the plane and suddenly shots broke out from the hijackers, scattering the journalists. 
Occasionally, the militiamen would give the pilots newspapers to read, especially if it had information about the hijacking in it. They loved reading about themselves in the paper. John Testrick got a hold of a USA Today, which covered the recent press conference, and there was a feature photo of co-pilot Christian Zimmerman asking the reporters to send well wishes to his father, who was elderly. But the story was about how the pilot had no idea that his father had passed away a few days before. John looked up from one of the cabin seats, and there was Christian, studiously reading his Bible, completely unaware that his father was gone. John broke the news to him, gently but bluntly, and handed him the newspaper. After Christian read the article, he and John just sat alone, in total silence for a few minutes. And finally, Christian was able to muster, quote, I wish I could have been with him, but I know he's gone home. End quote. When the militia guards found out that Christian's father had passed away, they were nearly as devastated as he was, almost sharing in his grief. They were very family-oriented men, but Testray couldn't help but ask himself, where was this remorse for the death of young Robert Statham? The answer John found out in his political debates with the hijackers was always, New Jersey, New Jersey, they're always shouting New Jersey. The USS New Jersey had fired over 300 shells into Beirut just two years prior. It was Reagan's retaliation for the suicide barracks bombing that killed over 300 multinational forces, 241 of which were American. Nearly every Lebanese guard on board Testrick's plane at this moment knew someone who was killed by the shells of the New Jersey. In one of these debates, one of the young men kept pressing John on his thoughts on the Ayatollah in Iran. You like Khomeini? He kept pestering. No, John replied over and over again. No. The young man was shocked. Why not, he asked. And he said, Khomeini is bad. He kills his own people. But despite the cultural, political, and ideological differences, the Lebanese cuisine flowed freely, and John and his crew often sat cross-legged on the floor with their caretakers as if they were old friends. Often, these young men were so careless with their rifles that they would lose them, and John, like a mindful parent, would remind them of where they last left them. The food, in fact, was almost like room service. One of the hijackers would lean out the window, fire off a few rounds, and out from the airport would come their next meal. One day, Captain Testrick was writing down his thoughts on the murder of Robert Statham, but he lost the paper, and it wound up in the hands of a not-so-nice-looking guard who John had never met before. The guard called John to the cockpit and asked him what the letter said. John's heart skipped a beat. He knew if they could read what it said, he would likely be shot. So he snatched the letter out of the man's hand. Give me that, he shouted. That's a letter to my wife. It's personal. Then the guard, in broken English, profusely apologized, swearing that he never intended to read a letter to another man's wife. And John and the guard shook hands and parted. Quote, If there was one thing that the hijackers loved to talk about, besides Khomeini, it was their families. One day, one man was positively giddy because he had earned a few days off and he was going to be able to spend time with his wife and his two children. Others would tell us about their wives and children or parents, and when they did, you could see the hard edges melting away and a wistful look in their eyes. Those were the times when I felt most strongly that, in spite of the situation we found ourselves in, we were all brothers in the family of man. What a tragedy that the world has divided into armed camps, where men and women are killed just because they are Americans or Jews or Arabs. I don't mean to get on a soapbox or be melodramatic, but when you sit down with your enemy... And he starts telling you with love and pride in his eyes that his baby daughter is learning to walk. It does something to break down the walls and make you realize that all men are created in the image of God, even if we fall short of what we're meant to be. End quote. One night after a relatively pleasant evening of conversation and debate with a guard who struck John as particularly intelligent, he gave John a few parting words before he left for the evening. Quote, Captain... The United States is the premier number one country in the entire world. Everyone knows that. You have the most benefits for your people, the freest government, the most possibilities for your people to be successful. You are the model country, the one that all the rest of the world would like to look up to, admire, and imitate. You are such a big, powerful country, you shouldn't feel like you have to throw your weight around against a little country like Lebanon. You ought to lead by setting a good example, and then the rest of the world will want to follow. End quote. John just sat and thought a moment, quote, I started to object, but didn't. I wanted to tell him that the United States doesn't set out to push anyone around, but I remembered the horror stories about the shelling from the New Jersey and how many innocent people had been killed. I didn't agree with everything he was saying, 
But still, he had given me much to think about. I hoped I had done the same for him. We were only two insignificant people among millions, but I felt that we had contributed something, no matter how small, to understanding between two warring factions. We shook hands and said goodnight. I watched him leave, hoping that we would be able to talk again, and hoping, too, that he would be able to survive the insanity and see peace come to his beloved Lebanon. End quote. Captain John Testrick's inexhaustible mental energy to play nanny to a bunch of punk revolutionaries, debate them on geopolitics, and try somehow to keep the plane in one piece didn't run out there. He even made an effort to evangelize within his own ranks. He knew his co-pilot, Phil Maresca, was sort of an agnostic, and so in classic American Protestant fashion, he began prodding Phil about his beliefs in God. But just as it seemed that John was making some spiritual progress with Phil, Divine Providence, it seems, sent Phil his ticket off the plane in the form of a poisonous spider. The bite was spreading on Phil's arms and was turning his flesh purple. The hijackers brought a doctor on the plane who, of course, determined that Phil needed to go to the hospital, much to their chagrin. Before he left, the doctor whispered to John and Christian, telling them to manage to get themselves sick or something. Easier said than done, thought John. Quote, When I watched Phil leave, I was full of mixed feelings. I was happy that he was able to leave the plane and I knew he would be more comfortable in the hospital, and a spider bite really did need medical attention. But at the same time, I hated to see my crew broken up. We had been through a lot together, and I think we made as fine a team as I had ever known. End quote. One night, Captain John Testrick and his co-pilot Christian Zimmerman were both falling asleep in the cabin to the sounds of planes landing and taking off at the Beirut runway. But this was not destined to be a night that they were going to get any sleep. They were awoken at midnight and rushed out of the plane, and a black car was waiting for them. Someone shouted, Get in! John and Christian were squeezed into the backseat between two guards, and they drove off the airport and into the hellish streets outside. Quote, For the first time, we were actually off the airport property, driving towards the city of Beirut. We turned corner after corner to the point where it almost seemed that we were going in circles. They were obviously trying to keep us from figuring out where we were headed, and they didn't have to try so hard because I was lost in about 30 seconds. I didn't even know which direction we were going in, but we were getting our first real look at the city of Beirut, and even though it was dark, we could see that it was a horrible mess. Here, the street was blasted away or littered with huge chunks of concrete from bombed-out buildings, and there you had to maneuver around burned-out, rusted cars. Debris was heaped everywhere. Luxury hotels had gaping holes in their walls. This was a painfully battered city. Huge tanks sat in the middle of several intersections where they could swing their big guns to fire in any direction. Other than the tanks, there was no traffic on the streets. They were totally deserted, and the entire city seemed to be dark, except for an occasional streetlight. The only signs of life were the uniformed young militiamen who were keeping watch over the numerous checkpoints. End quote. John, as he watched the city pass him by, thought one of the guards must have known what he was thinking. And he turned to him and said, quote, Beirut used to be a city that never slept. There was more going on here at night than in the daytime. End quote. But then the guard went silent for a few moments, until he continued, quote, You wouldn't know it now, but this used to be quite a city. End quote. Finally, the car stopped and Testrick and Zimmerman were ordered to get out. Both were wondering if this is the spot where they would be lined up and shot. But they were directed to another car that took them to an apartment where they were ordered to give an interview for an Algerian news crew. John and Christian were tired, disheveled, dirty. They did the best they could for their audience. Then they were thrown into another car and taken to another apartment. And when the door opened, John was relieved because in front of him, he saw an actual real-life mattress on the floor. The head of the militia guard politely invited them in and even offered them the bathroom to shower and shave. They didn't need to be told twice. And after three hours of the best sleep they've had in over two weeks, John and Christian were awoken again and served thick, black, Arabic coffee. Small talk was made between the guards and the pilots, but... There was only one thing on John's mind. And finally, he looked at the head of security and simply asked him, What do you think? Maybe today was all he said. Today? Christian shouted. Maybe, he offered again. But the guard soon led on to some more information. He said that the other hostage passengers scattered throughout Beirut would be flown out on Middle East Airlines but he needed the pilots to go back to their TWA aircraft to make sure that it's in good working order for its next flight, out of Beirut. And so later that day, John and Christian were back on the tarmac of the Beirut airport, 
but this time they were escorted by a Middle East airline maintenance crew who agreed to help them give the plane a once-over, and the Hezbollah guards were on their flanks. Quote, I sat back down in the captain's seat, slid the window open, and Christian and I started calling back and forth as we checked the various controls. I would call out what I was going to do, and then he and the maintenance supervisor would check to see if that piece of equipment was working properly. Being back in the cockpit, and realizing that we were probably on the verge of being released, it was easy to slip back into my captain's mentality. End quote. While John was in his captain's chair, literally and figuratively, one of the guards waltzed into the cockpit. He asked John what he was doing, but Captain Testrick was in the middle of one of his checks, so he ignored the young man. This time, he leaned into John's ear and shouted, What are you doing? At that, Captain Testrick spun his chair around, stuck his finger in the guard's face, and said, Shut up. The guard absolutely lost it, and he told John that he was going to kill him. He then began flipping switches on and off like a petulant child who didn't know what to do with his impotent anger. John was unimpressed and simply turned his back on the young man throwing a temper tantrum, who huffed off cursing away. Another guard came in and, seeing that the plane was powered up again, asked the captain if he could use the radio. No, John said sharply. But I need the radio, he persisted. Sorry, no. But the young man's voice raised in pitch as he shouted that he wanted to use the radio. And John recalled that he's heard the same tone from a three-year-old who's told he can't have another cookie. Sorry, no radio for you, John said. With the plane in satisfactory condition, John and Christian began walking back across the tarmac. But he was stopped by one of the guard commanders. Did you say shut up to Hussein? he asked. Yeah, I did, John replied. And John looked over at young Hussein, sulking and muttering to himself. And so the captain walked over, quote, Listen, I don't have anything against you. You're an okay guy. But I just don't like being yelled at. And you don't like people yelling at you, right? End quote. And so John extended his hand for a handshake. Are we friends, he asked. And young Hussein smiled, shook his hands. Friends, he said. And even took a picture together. John and Christian then threw their bags into the car that was waiting to take them to God knows where, and after a short drive, they pulled up to an elementary school, where they were escorted into its courtyard. And when the gates opened, John and Christian were greeted by a roaring cheer from the awaiting crowd. It was their passengers. The remaining American men had all been recovered from the Beirut hideouts. Even Phil was there waiting with his arm bandaged up. But that night at the schoolyard, John and Christian found themselves as esteemed guests at some very wealthy residences in Beirut who were curious about the pilots and about the United States. But John noticed that they were also filled with grief and sadness. Quote, We wish you were here because you wanted to be. Then we could show you real Lebanese hospitality. This was such a good place to live. The school, there were always children playing along the streets. And sometimes you could hear their laughter from the schoolyard. End quote. John reflected on these peculiar moments. Quote, as we continued to talk, I realized that we were all victims. They were being held hostage every bit as much as we were. But whereas our ordeal was about to end, there seemed likely to go on and on and on. After a while, the talking subdued into silence, and there didn't seem to be anything left to say. So wishing the people well, we bid them good night and walk back down the street to the schoolyard. End quote. On June 30th, 1985, the Red Cross escorted the hostages to Damascus, Syria, where they would be flown to West Germany, with Vice President George H.W. Bush awaiting them. Their caravan out of Beirut was like a parade for national heroes. Throngs of people had turned out, cheering for their release. Even some of the militiamen pinned flowers to the chests of their former hostages. Quote, But after we had celebrated for a few moments, a strange sadness washed over me, as I realized that not everyone was going home. I thought about young Robert Statham and the agony that his family must have been going through. In the celebration and excitement, I had momentarily forgotten that Statham had given his life. That tragic, monstrous event seemed too unreal now, lost in the haze as if it had happened years ago. As we continued rumbling through Beirut, I said a silent prayer that God would bless, comfort, and sustain his family through this time of loss. End quote. It was 5.30 in the morning when the former hostages touched down in West Germany with the FBI waiting with open arms. John was whisked off to a military hospital where the FBI sat him down and began picking his brain for every detail he could remember. Quote, Listen guys, I don't mind answering your questions, but you have to understand one thing. I am waiting for my wife, and the minute she walks through that door, you guys are walking out. End quote. And finally, the door opened. Quote, there stood Phyllis, the best thing I had ever seen in my life. 
The only thing that had happened in our 18 days of separation was that she had become more beautiful. And then I looked at the agents. So long, guys. End quote. And the FBI agents quickly shuffled their papers and got the hell out of there as fast as humanly possible. Quote, then she was in my arms. I couldn't seem to hold her tight enough or find the words to let her know how much I loved her and had missed her. All I knew was at that moment I felt safe and secure, and I knew I had truly come home. End quote. While Captain John Testrick was traveling back to his grape farm in Missouri, a reporter asked him what would be the first thing that he would do when he got back home. The answer was easy for John. The very next morning, he was going to drive down to his local barber and get a haircut. And welcome home signs greeted the captain throughout all of Missouri. And in his own town of Richmond, the entire city was waiting on the side of the road, welcoming him back. He was thankful, but anxious to get back to his farm and just to be plain old John again. But later that day, John realized that the reporters must have thought that he was an idiot. Tomorrow is the 4th of July. Barbershops are not open on the 4th of July. But at 8 a.m., on Independence Day, John was awoken by a phone call. It was May Hammond, the owner of the local town barbershop. And John quickly apologized, saying that he forgot it was the 4th of July and he was sorry for the confusion and that he would just be in tomorrow. But May interjected, quote, Now, John, I'm here waiting for you. And you get over here to this barbershop right now. Besides, you're getting awful shaggy. End quote. And so, a few minutes later, John was sitting in his barber chair, reflecting on the past couple weeks and more. For in his life, he had tragically lost his wife and two of his sons. He'd contended with and come out on top of a pain that I pray to God I don't have to contend with in my life. So by the time he'd come face to face with a couple of young revolutionaries who got their way by executing helpless victims, he kept his cool. And in the end, there was nothing they could really threaten him with. And that very fact is what kept him calm enough to navigate his way through an international hijacking and hostage situation. But he had also learned something of a part of the world that he had previously not encountered. He learned that his hijackers too were victims of pain and loss, and the destruction being wrought upon their lives seemed to have no clear end in sight. On that Independence Day in 1985, John likely took the world that he knew a bit less for granted. For as sure as the sun rises, John could think of no better place to get his hair cut than in small town America. been a couple of movies made about these events one was made in the 80s and had chuck norris in it of all people and i grew up with this movie so it holds a special place in my heart the second half of the movie is just campy action but the first half is really gripping and it depicts the hijack scenes that we just described with some really good accuracy even the actor that they got to play testrick is a dead ringer it's a fun movie, but it's kind of dated, so if you're inclined, check it out. I really hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I loved learning about John Testrick, and he's just sort of the perfect grumpy old man to be caught in a hijacking situation. And then learning about the pain and the loss of the hijackers involved, it just humanizes everybody in the story, which is something that I really try and do here on this show. I, as always, need to thank my kid sister Courtney for the cover art she does with this show. It gets better and better every episode, so she's a big, big help. If you want to be a big help... The number one thing you can do is leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That's the key place to leave ratings and reviews. I'm really fortunate with all the ratings and reviews that I've got. I, I think I've got almost all five-star ratings, one four-star rating, and then whoever left me a four-star rating left me probably the best review I've ever received for the podcast. So I'm just really fortunate to have all you guys listening to the show. Another way to really help me out is to become a patron of the show. You can sign up for whatever you're comfortable with. And, you know, one of the things you get out of that is a couple times a month, I'll post some of the research material that I'm working on. And you also get early access to the episodes. I can usually get them up there about three days in advance. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. You can reach me on the Written in Blood Facebook page. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. I am on Instagram. I am on Twitter, but I just don't check those as often. 
And this little show is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. They have a really good mix of other podcasts. If you're interested, Google Evergreen Podcast. You'll find their website and you can find all the other really cool shows that are associated with them. And so this has been Written in Blood History, where history is people. These are their stories. And they are written in blood. We'll see you guys later. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.